tattoo. <laughs> Brother Bickle, that's Irish. But <laughs> uh, I need to also give you greetings from Bill and Mary Rice, from Rick and Debbie Savage, and from Bill and Cheryl Nichols, and of course from Mary Lynn and John Jr. It's a delight to be back here. Pastor Jim Bickle pastors the Bethel Baptist Fellowship in Brooklyn, New York City. It is a church that ministers both to the Jewish and Gentile communities of Brooklyn, New York. But the reason the Lord has brought Brother Jim to our midst for this week, for this conference, is because God, some years ago, ignited a passion for revival in this man's heart. And God has used it to uh, ignite several different prayer meetings. A daily prayer meeting uh, at, uh, at uh, his church, as well as a monthly chair, a prayer meeting among the preachers of New York City. Both of those have been going now for two years. I will tell you this, if man starts it, it'll fizzle before two years comes. God's doing something. And uh, I uh, have just been deeply blessed over these uh, last several years especially. Uh, when I'm around, uh, Brother Bickle, it's a sharpening time, and it's a, a time where the Lord stirs and burns His truth into my heart. And may the Lord do that in all of our hearts, tonight and throughout these days. God bless you, Brother Jim. You see you. <laughs> Welcome from Brooklyn, New York. I uh, am very happy to be here with you. Uh, I was also happy, and I should add one more job to uh, Brother Matthew's uh, list, and that is he picks up uh, guest speakers, and I'm thankful for that, and so is Brother John as well. He uh, picked us up and took us to breakfast this morning. We're very thankful for his service for the Lord, and I know he'll be sorely missed here at this church. You know, I'm thinking, should I say it or not, my mother was uh, raised by two Scottish parents. Now, I know those are fighting words here in Ireland, but uh, well, let me tell you something funny. My mother is Scottish to the bone, and uh, to the point that on St. Patty's Day, you wear orange, you know, just to be rebellious. Funniest thing happened. I started doing a little bit of research about her family, uh, in order to present her a gift uh, with some history. And I found out that some of them came from Ireland to Scotland. <laughs> so I had to break the news to her that, uh, guess what, Mom? Uh, we're part Irish, we're part Scottish, so uh, get over it. Actually, my mom is a dear, sweet Christian woman, and uh, she's praying for our meetings uh, this week and uh, looking forward to uh, hear what God's done. I want you to take your Bible, if you will, please, and turn with me to Genesis chapter 28 this evening. Genesis chapter 28. It's my first time to Ireland, and uh, I haven't seen very much, but what I've seen is just beautiful. Uh, you have a beautiful country, and... Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing more of the land and getting to know the people as well during the time here. Good to meet uh, many of you already this morning, and good to see you back here tonight. Genesis chapter 28. Let me just read a few verses, uh, if I could. Uh, let me begin, if we will, at verse 10. And Jacob 
went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows. Can you imagine using stones for pillows? But it's beside the point. He lay down in that place to sleep and he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest to thee will I give it and to thy seed. By the way, there's a lot of fighting over that land, but here it is. We know who it belongs to. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And aren't you thankful for the Jewish people? and the blessing that they have brought to the world as a result of this very uh, covenant. Behold, God said in verse 15, I am with thee, and I will keep thee in all places whither thou goest. And I will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Jacob rose up early in the morning, took the stone that he had put for his pillows, set it up for a pillar, and poured oil upon the top of it, and he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city was called Luz at the first. Let's just briefly pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you tonight once again, we thank you that you are here in our midst in the blessed person of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we understand as we heard this morning that it's not up to us to do anything it's Christ that lives in us. It's Christ that is in us that we are depending upon to do what You desire to accomplish tonight. And so we thankfully take that anointing that is ours through Christ. and We pray that You will accomplish Your purpose, that You will glorify Your name. And Lord, we pray that You will hide Your servant in the shadows that Jesus might be highlighted and that He might be exalted and magnified. We thank You, Lord, for who and what You are and for what You have for us from this passage this evening. Speak, Lord. May Your servants hear. And Lord, may we be what You want us to be. Make us to be so in the way that only you can. And we'll give you the thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the name Jacob. But when you think of Jacob, what kind of character 
Do you think of someone as his name would uh, teach us that was mean, someone that was selfish, a person that was deceitful, a person that was a cheater, he was a schemer? You know what? I think that's the reason why Jacob uh, is so interesting to me. I share a lot of the characteristics of this man. A lot of similarities, I think, between Jacob and us. Two men were discussing the character of the third, and one of them said, well, let me describe him this way. Do you guys have revolving doors here in this country? Okay, good. Then I'll go on. <laughs> he said, this guy is the kind of guy that if you follow him, uh, if he follows you through a revolving door, he'll come out first. That's Jacob. Any way he can, he is a conniver, he's a schemer, he'll come out on top. That's just the way he works. That's the kind of man he is. And I want you to see what God did to mold this schemer, this conniver, who was used to getting his way because self was at the center of all of his plans. How God took this deceitful man, this man that deceived his brother, put his brother Esau into a rage, and then followed his mother's scheme, ran away from home, lived in exile for, as a fugitive for many years. How God all this time was at work in this man's life until he broke him. God is interested in people that he can truly work through. And the only individual that he can work through is a person that he has, first of all, broken. And Jacob's an excellent case in point. There are three experiences, actually, in Jacob's life that come into play in what I would call a name-changer. It's a name-changing story. First of all, I've had you turn here to chapter 28. I want you to look at the last three verses now that we didn't read because I wanted to reserve them until now. And look at his resolution at Bethel. It says in verse 20 of chapter 28, Jacob bowed a vow saying, If God be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou give me, I will surely give the tenth or the tithe unto thee. The story all begins here in chapter 28. It begins with a dream that we've read about. This stairway that is set up on earth and reaches all the way to the top to heaven. It is at this place that he found God's presence. And God reveals himself to Jacob. And Jacob didn't even know it was God at first. And he wakes up after the dream and he comes to the realization, surely God is in this place. And I knew it not. How many times God has been in this place and we don't know it. God's been there all along, and we don't even recognize His presence. We don't know the reality of the ever-present God with us. Jacob was such a one. And Jacob's first recorded encounter with God is right here in this chapter. As a very young man, 
And I want you to see in that 20th to 22nd verse, in this resolution that he made at, at Bethel, I want you to see his reaction. And we just read it. And, uh, you know, perhaps you think, wow, you know, what a tremendous testimony this guy uh, makes here. He must have been gloriously changed. He had a genuine experience here. I don't doubt that at all. I believe that he met God here in chapter 28. Perhaps we would say, wow, why don't you come and give your testimony in church on Sunday? Uh, you really had a tremendous uh, meeting with the Lord. But I'm telling you, not a whole lot has changed at this point in his life. But folks, aren't we glad, nonetheless, that God meets us in our stubbornness? That God meets us as He did Jacob in our self-chosen, reckless way? That God is willing to meet us just as we are, where we are? Thank God for the Bethels in our life. Where God reveals Himself to us in a real way. For the first time, we experience the presence of God. That was chapter 8. But uh, what was the sequel to that? Well, Jacob's reaction as revealed in those three verses, if you follow through and look at chapter 29, 30, 31, 32, you'll see that Jacob's orientation, even though he had met God, really hasn't changed. If we're expecting to see a different man, we're going to be extremely disappointed because he's not really. Rather than getting increasing victory over his selfishness and giving increasing glory to the God that he met there at Bethel, he is still the same self-centered schemer. I don't mean that his experience at Bethel was bogus. He really met God there. It was a genuine experience. I'm convinced of it. However, it illustrates the possibility that we can meet God. That we can have a genuine experience with God, folks, and even be saved and continue on living a life that is predominantly self. We can be truly born again and yet exist connected largely to the energy of our flesh. I believe that's an explanation of Jacob's life at this point. You read verses 20 to 22 again in this chapter, and you realize that even in a holy moment, face-to-face -face encounter with God, he's scheming, he's looking out for number one, he's selfish, he's trying to make a deal with God. He's basically saying in those verses, look God, if you'll underwrite my venture uh, and donate the capital, when it's all said and done, I'll give you 10% back. Is that a good deal? But you know what, folks? Jacob is really an illustration of the average Christian life, including me, for so long. I mean, we're saved people. But we have no victory. There's no real glory going to God so often in our lives. Like Jacob Self is still very important in our lives, 
And it's always party in the contract that we've made with God. We say, God, if you'll give me joy, Lord, if you'll give me peace, if you'll give me relief from guilt, if you'll remove my anxiety from me, if you'll heal my marriage, if, if you'll give me real satisfaction and comfort, God, if you'll get me a good job, or Lord, if you will remove me from this mess, then, perhaps without even knowing it, we focused on the blessing and missed the blesser. We focused on the gift that he gives and we've missed the giver. And I want to tell you, God is not a party to bargains. He delivers from sin, but when we try to scheme self for selfish advantage, God withdraws, in a sense, from that. You remember when he fed those 5,000 in John chapter 6 and they were so amazed and so happy about that miracle. Oh, this is the prophet that the Scripture spoke of. And they tried to take him by force and make him king. He withdrew from them. He was not to be taken advantage of that way and bargained with that way. And later on in that chapter he says, Labor not for the meat that perisheth. So Jacob had a real experience with God. That's unquestionable. But you know what the sad thing is? For the next 25 years, self ruled his life. Oh, I see myself in that. And I hate that. The wasted years of a Christian life. I was saved as a child. I was raised in a pastor's home. Wasted years. And I want you to go next with me to chapter 32 and see his next encounter with God. This is his renunciation at, at Jabbok. Genesis chapter 32. After almost 25 years, he faces another crisis in his life, a great trial. He's meeting his brother Esau after all of those years, the brother that he had wronged. And the brother that became so angry at him, he wanted to murder him, who became embittered toward Jacob. And after 25 years, we read in verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. Jacob was cornered. And what we have prior to that in this 32nd chapter is the first recorded prayer of Jacob in 25 years. Now, Jacob likely prayed each day, but evidently his prayers were rather powerless. They made no real difference in his life that we can tell when we look at his life. But now he's desperate in need, and on his face he agonizes. And in verse 9 of Genesis 32, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Remember, that's how he identified himself in his first encounter with Jacob. The Lord which saidst unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will, dwell, I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. And I can say, Amen. 
But don't be fooled by that kind of high-sounding spiritual words. He goes on to say in verse 11, Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and smite me and the mother of my children. And thou saidst, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the, of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. God, you remember the bargain that we made? You said this, and I said, I'll do that. Jacob was cornered. I thank God for the kind of crises that drives us to our knees. That corners me. And I want to tell you, if you feel that God has you cornered in any way at this time, stop and thank Him for that. Jacob was not only cornered, he was confronted. When God has you cornered, it's at that moment that God has your attention. He got him alone, verse 24 says. Jacob was alone. And God's going to confront him. There wrestled a man with him until the breaking of day. He confronted him. He moves to use the opportunity to teach, take advantage of this man whom he has cornered. He confronts And look at what he does. He contested with him. He wrestled with him, verse 24 says. You know, if there is anything that Jacob did well, it was wrestle. He learned to wrestle before he was ever born. He was a born wrestler. In fact, just back a a few chapters in chapter 25, his mother feels it in her womb. The Bible says in verse 22 of chapter 25, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. You know what the Lord said? Two nations are in your womb. And two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And one people shall be stronger than the other people. And the elder shall serve the younger. And so there was wrestling going on in the womb between these twin boys, even before they were born. So he was no stranger to wrestling. In fact, I think it's uh, the prophet Hosea who tells us in Hosea chapter 12, he took his brother by the heel in the womb and by his strength he had power with God. So Jacob was a wrestler, but here it's not Jacob picking the fight. It's God. God here picks the fight. God is the one that wrestles with Jacob. God's the one that literally locks arms and legs with Jacob and grapples with him. Something that Jacob had been doing with God for 25 years, God now does to Jacob. He takes the initiative. And look at what happens. Verse 25 says, And when he, the angel of the Lord, I believe a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Jacob was first cornered, then confronted, and then God contested with him, and then God crippled him. 
Here's the climax of, of Jacob's confrontation or contest with God. God does something, I believe, here that He really doesn't want to do. He cripples him. He crippled Jacob. Your pastor this morning, as I recall, said there was only one sport that he ever really uh, participated in, and that was track, running. Well, there's only one sport I ever really participated in in high school, and that was wrestling. And uh, I know this, with the little experience that I've had in wrestling, that uh, the most important part of your body in wrestling is not your arms, but your legs. In fact, if your arms aren't that strong... If you can utilize, if you have long legs and you can tie up your opponent with those legs, you can not only wear him down, but you can pin and beat your opponent if you're a good leg wrestler. So when God crippled Jacob, basically he took away his ability to wrestle anymore. That's what's happening here. And Jacob realized that it was not only foolish, but it was futile to resist God. He finally learned that. Are you resisting God at any point in your life currently? Is there some area that you're saying no to God about? Is there resistance in anything that God has dealt with your heart concerning? Maybe it's a habit Maybe it's a person that you need to break off a relationship with. I don't know what it is. But is there anything that you're resisting God over? Must God cripple you? When God crippled Jacob, then Jacob could do nothing but cling. All he could use was his arms. And so we see Jacob was crippled and now Jacob's clinging. That's all he had the strength to do. And so he clings. In verse 26, the angel of the Lord says, Let me go for the day breaketh. And he, Jacob, said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Well, how was he holding on? Not with his leg, but with his arms. He was simply clinging. The initiative passed from God now to Jacob, and Jacob takes the initiative and he clings. For 25 years, Jacob had been contesting, but now he's clinging because he's been crippled. He's been incapacitated. And all he's able to do now is cling. He could neither fight nor could he flee. He could only cling. And again, the... Uh, book of Hosea, the prophet, brings it out even more clearly. It says, Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. Listen, he wept and made supplication unto him that he found in Bethel. In other words, get the picture. Here's this man. He's, he's a strong man, but now he's crippled. And all he can do is simply hold on and cling. And he's crying. He's weeping. And he's begging. And he's saying, oh God, bless me. That's what he wanted. 
all of his life. And now he's clinging for dear life. And will you look what happens in verse 27 and 28? This crippled, clinging man encounters something wonderful. God asks him his name. Verse 27, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince, thou hast power with God and with men and hast prevailed. Jacob is crowned. There's no more scheming. He can't. But now he's called a prince with God. And you know what's ironic about that? That's the very thing that he spent the last 25 years scheming for, only to realize that when he was broken before God and surrendered, when he was helpless, when he abandoned all to God, that's when he got what he wanted. It's an incredible truth that absolute surrender to the Lord is victory. You say, wow, what a wonderful man. He certainly was different from this encounter with the Lord. I wish I could say so. You read chapter 33 and, and 34 following this 32nd chapter and look at the description of Jacob's life and after all of that great experience of being broken and absolutely surrendering, you follow those two chapters and you'll find that he's just as miserable and just as immoral as he has been the rest of his life. But God said... You are no more Jacob, cheater, schemer, conniver, but Israel, prince with God. I think it's G. Campbell Morgan that says, literally, God governed. Under God's control. That's your name. Well, if he's prince with God what's going on here then when you read the following chapters well because that's what he is potentially but that's not what he is practically why is that folks why is this man potentially a God-governed man a prince with the Lord but not practically I think the explanation of Jacob's life in, ver in chapters 33 to 35 shows us that there are three enemies that he's up against. There's the flesh in chapter 33. He's dealing with Esau, I think, who can picture the flesh. And he's scheming, he's plotting, he's groveling in the dirt before his brother. He's trying to ingratiate himself toward him. He's lying, he's deceiving in his battle with Esau, or the flesh, as he might represent. In chapter 33, verses 17 to 19, uh, here he is back in the land, and it says he journeyed to Sukkoth and built him a house and made booths for his cattle. Verse 18, Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is of the land of Canaan, when he came from Padam Aram and pitched his tent before the city. And 
bought a parcel of field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamar, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. You see what he's doing here? He's not going back to Bethel where he was supposed to return. Instead, he is living as near as possible to a Canaanite city, to a Canaanite lifestyle. That's, I believe, the enemy of the world pictured for us. See how he's dealing with his enemies? With the flesh, he's relying upon himself, his ability to deceive and to scheme. With the world, he's walking as close to it and living near as possible to it. In chapter 35 and verses 2 to 4, after the Lord says, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar unto God that appeared to you. Jacob says to his household, Put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. Verse 4, They gave unto Jacob all the strange gods that were in their hand What's going on with this family? They're still involved in pagan demon worship, you might say. So there's that third enemy, the devil. And he's being tolerated in the family. They're worshiping idols. He's conniving even with idolatry in his household. They're practicing it. And the devil is behind all idolatry. Why couldn't Jacob prevail against those three enemies after his mighty experience in chapter 32 at the Brook Jabbok? Because, folks, yesterday's act of surrender, regardless of how real it was, does not guarantee you victory today. You see, surrender must be renewed daily and moment by moment. Full surrender, someone says, is the act of the moment, but the work of a lifetime. I think it was McConkie who said, the surrender of a life is a life of surrender. Surrender must be met with a, a dependency, moment by moment, upon the one who you surrender to for his victory. Let's take one final trip in chapter 35. I've already looked at verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. That, of course, is a reference to chapter 28. Here is his rededication at Bethel. God says, Jacob, go back to Bethel and live there. Return to the place where you first experienced my presence. In other words, Jacob, the secret of your victory lay there. Return. All those years of defeat were unnecessary. Go back to Bethel where you first saw the light and, uh, and see how Jacob becomes Israel. What was Bethel? Well, you remember it was the place of the dream. You remember what the dream was? He saw a stairway that 
started on the earth and reached all the way to heaven. It was a stairway from earth to heaven that he dreamed of. And on that stairway, he saw the free uh, intercourse of the angels going up and down that stairway. What's the Christian's Bethel? I would cross-reference the dream that uh, Jacob had at Bethel with John chapter 1 and verse 51. This is the story of Jesus as he begins his ministry and he's he's meeting uh, those that would become his disciples and calling them to follow him. And Nathaniel, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said to him in verse 47 of John 1, Behold an Israelite indeed in, him, in whom is no guile. Nathaniel saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Interesting what Jesus is illuminating in Nathanael's mind. In the mind of the Jew, the rabbis say that in the messianic age, in the age of the kingdom when Messiah reigns, that it will be such a kingdom of peace that every Jewish person will be able to sit under their fig tree and study the Torah, the Jewish scriptures. Nathanael answered, verse 49, and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel, you're the Messiah. Jesus answered and said, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, here's the verse, Hereafter, Ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon a stairway to heaven, right? No, the Son of God. That connection between heaven and earth isn't some inanimate object, a stairway, but it's the Son of God. It's Jesus. What is our Bethel then? Jesus interprets it for us. It's the Son of Man, first of all, set up on earth. That happened. We just celebrated that at Christmas, Bethlehem. But that's not where it ends. When did heaven open? The Son of Man, the angels and ascending and descending. You'll see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. When did heaven open? It opened after Calvary. It opened at the ascension. It opened after the resurrection. But it's all connected to Calvary. Bethel for the Christian is the place of the ascension. The stairway set and heaven opened is Jesus to this earth fulfilling His mission. 
in the redemption at Calvary, rising from the dead three days later, and then 40 days later ascending to sit on the right hand of the majesty on high. And it's the enthroned Christ that is pictured here. So the Christian's Bethel is heaven opened by the ascended Christ that gives us permission to enter before the throne of grace. We have boldness to enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus, by that uh, uh, new and living way, through that veil that was rent, that is to say, His flesh. And we are able to come boldly before the throne of grace and find grace and mercy to help us in the time of need. So the believer's Bethel is the place of ascension. It's the enthroned Christ. And that gives us permission to enter before the throne of grace, but it doesn't end there. It also gives us position to sit on the throne with Christ. And that's even greater. And for that, we go to, of course, the book of Ephesians and chapter 1, where we read as Paul prays for the eyes of these believers to be spiritually enlightened, illumined. And he says that they might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Isn't that where the top of the ladder is? Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in the world to come and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That's the church. And then we go down to chapter 2 and we read in that fifth verse, we were dead in sins, but He's it quickened us together with Christ. By grace, of course. And verse 6, and He's raised us up together. And He has made us sit together in heavenly places. In other words, where Jesus is on the throne, positionally the believer in Jesus is on the throne too. And so Bethel is not only the place where we have permission to enter before the throne of grace, but it is position to sit on the throne with Christ. It's authoritative power. And as been said, Satan is totally disadvantaged in the spiritual realm when a believer claims their position in the enthroned Christ. He's automatically defeated. And that's why he doesn't want believers to know that truth. And that's why he trembles truly when believers get a hold of this truth and they realize the permission to enter before the throne of grace on the basis of the position to sit on the throne with Christ. That is Satan's defeat. I also could not help but notice in that uh, passage in John chapter 1 that when Jesus talks about this, he says, truly, truly, I say unto you, uh, uh, he says that you will hereafter 
see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. In the verse just before that is what I, I wanted to call your attention to. He says, thou shalt see greater things than these. You know what, I can't read those words without being reminded of what he said in John 14. Greater works than these shall ye do because I go to my Father. What's he going to go? He's going to go and sit on the throne. And that is going to be the authority of the believer that is the basis for their greater works. And here he says, greater things shall you see. The enthroned Christ. And thus the permission to enter before the throne of grace and the position to sit on the throne with Christ. We need to get back to Bethel. And we need to live there. We need to abide there. In the heavenlies. We need to set our affection on things above. Literally go on setting your affection on things above. Don't ever stop doing that. Abide there. That's the attitude of faith that must follow surrender. We have to reckon and go on reckoning in the morning, in the noon, in the evening. You and I can enjoy spiritual rest, a rest of faith that is centered in and ascended and an enthroned Christ that has conquered all of our enemies, the flesh and the world and the devil. And your name can be changed that you be no more Jacob, but Israel. God govern. That's a real name changer. That's what God wants to do in us. Now, I was blessed by rereading the latest issue of the Revival magazine, God's Work in a Preacher, the story, the personal testimony of Douglas Brown a preacher from England, Baptist preacher, back in the early part of the 20th century. You may have read that article yourself if you get the magazine. But I, I don't know how many times I've read that because he even says in that article that he shared this at Keswick because he wanted it to be used of the Lord to be a help to other people. Well, I'll tell you, it blesses my heart every time I read that. But Douglas Brown, regardless of how famous and how great a preacher he was in, in England, prior to the revival that God used him in, in East Anglia, that man was a Jacob. And he admits it. He says it. He explains it in his talks on revival that next year, in 1922, at Keswick. He says, God dealt with me. For four long months and I resisted and I would not submit to what I knew he wanted me to do until one night God broke me he said I was in the midst of preaching can you imagine pastor preaching and being under conviction having the Holy Spirit deal with your heart when you're preaching yeah, it happens <laughs> believe me it happens but he was preaching one Sunday night. His church was filled. He had pastored that church for 15 years. And he said, I never remember a Sunday going by without having conversions. Large church. But he said, I, I 
was convicted after that message. He said, I went to the vestry, and he said, I, I threw myself down. I met with the Lord, and I was so conflicted by that. I went home, and I went directly to my study, and my wife came to knock on the door to tell me supper was ready, and I told her I'm not going to take supper tonight. And he said he wrestled with the Lord. He went to bed that night but couldn't sleep. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, he got up and he, in the darkness, he stumbled over his dog and fell. <laughs> and he said, uh, I knelt down in my study and that dog came and licked my face. And he said, that, that night at 2 in the morning, God broke me. And you know what he said? He was resisting God because he, he was a, a successful pastor for all practical purposes. But God wanted him to do revival work, to be a revival evangelist, and he didn't want to do it. He was happy. He loved his people. They loved him. He didn't want to do it. But here's what he said, and I'll never forget it after reading this. He said to the Lord, Lord, I love you more than what you are calling me to do is distasteful to me. That's where, that's where it's at. That's where we have to come to. What is it that you're resisting the Lord about? Do you love him more than that which is so important to you that you're struggling against the Spirit of God in it? Let's bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, I have to admit, I'm a Jacob. Lord, I'm so glad that you love Jacobs. I'm so glad, Lord, that you're patient with us. You're patient with me. You continue to strive. You're willing to wrestle with us, but Lord, when we wrestle with you, we really never are the winner. It is not only foolish, it's futile. It's futile. Lord, it's so wonderful when you break us. It's such a release. There is such joy. There is such blessing that comes from it. Lord, I just pray that each one of us would become genuinely sick of ourselves and that we would break before you, that we would surrender in bowed knee and open hand in Jesus' name.